we had a great brand that we were building. We were in a good channel in Amazon uh, and, a, and a pretty good channel also in Target uh, that really allowed us to maintain um, integrity in our margins. And, and then uh, we started to build the team out that I think we focused on the planning. In 2016, I co-founded a drinkware company called Simple Modern. I was obsessed with the question, what would happen if we built a for-profit company focused on generosity? This podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at how we scaled from a bootstrapped startup to nine figures in annual revenue. We'll share with you the strategies we used, things learned along the way, and how we built a different type of company. This is Scaling for Good. Welcome back to Scaling for Good. I'm Mike Beckham, your host, the co-founder and CEO of Simple Modern. When you're building a company, you have to do everything. You have to wear all the hats. And one of the hats that I wore as we were building Simple Modern was that of a lead recruiter. And fairly early on, we realized that we were going to need someone to be the architect of the financial side of the company. I had a particular person in mind that I'd known at that point for probably uh, almost 15 years, but he lived in a different state and he had a great job and I had no idea if he would be interested or willing to move back to Oklahoma. Uh, and also he didn't have any uh, experience in the industry that we were in. Uh, even though I had all those things working against me, I set out to recruit him to join the company and word kind of got to him before I did that we were going to recruit him. And, and the, the scuttlebutt that I got back was that there was no way I was going to pull this off. So I, I walked into our first conversation, recruiting conversation, very skeptical about my chances of landing this candidate. Uh, to my surprise, after a couple months of discussing the opportunity, I was excited when Jeff Hannum accepted the role as chief financial officer at Simple Modern, and he'll be joining us today. We're going to talk about everything involved with building a strong financial organization. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Mike, it's great to be here. Good to have you. Let's start here. Why don't you walk us through your career up to joining Simple Modern? Sure, sure. Well, actually, I started my career much like you uh, with a, a nonprofit called Crew. Yep. And uh, it's actually what brought me to Oklahoma. I'd grown up in Texas, went to school in Texas. And so I was at Oklahoma State for a few years with Crew and then went back to the University of Oklahoma and did a, an MBA and started my career with KPMG uh, as, a, as an auditor. So I'm a CPA by trade. Uh, and KPMG is what took us away to Denver. As you alluded to, we were recruited away from Denver. Uh, so spent seven or eight years with KPMG uh, as a senior manager, their audit practice, uh, and then went into industry for a while. So I worked as a controller at a um, international energy company, uh, which was fun. We had offices in Budapest, Kurdistan, so I traveled a little bit. Um, that was a great role. Uh, that company started to wind up, so I went back to consulting for a bit, did some IPO uh, preparation consulting with a group called Opportune. Uh, which is where I was at when you and I talked uh, in 2016, 2017. I don't know where, when we commenced talks, but uh, so I, I was doing some consulting work uh, in, in out of Denver. So uh, when I first approached you with the idea of coming back to work, I guess a couple of other details that are relevant. Uh, I worked with your wife. She wasn't yep. your wife when I worked directly with her, but that was actually, I think, how we came to know each other. Yeah. Uh, also interesting to me, I did not know this until uh, a couple of weeks ago, you never got a degree in accounting, even though no. you did. You, you became a CPA and you did a ton of stuff in accounting. That's actually been a theme that's come up in several of these conversations conversations, how our careers often, you know, don't, they're not linear. They don't go exactly the yeah. way that we expect. Obviously, um, your career has not followed uh, the type of traditional trajectory maybe that you would have thought. So when I approached you in 2016 about the opportunity to come be a part of Simple Modern, uh, why did you consider it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think predominantly, um, I was looking for something different from what uh, the previous roles had offered, which is really to take what I felt like skills and, and uh, passions I had and and use those and feel like I, I'm in a company where I can use those for uh, the good. I mean, for lack of a better term, but to um, help others. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I wasn't purely, I mean, 
I am motivated by the profit motive, but yeah. but also there's kind of the double bottom line with uh, you know wanting to feel like you're also making a difference in the community, uh, and that goes back to you know why I worked for a nonprofit to to begin with, and my wife worked for a nonprofit to begin with because we care about people, and um, there were fulfilling parts about the other roles I had done. I enjoyed the the work aspect of it, but I think ultimately the highest level reason for considering it was to work with other people who I knew had that same mindset and to try and build something together that was, was different from the way a lot of other companies operate and think. So it was uh, very compelling to you from a purpose point of view. Yeah. Uh, you had no experience in anything with consumer packaged right. goods, drink wear. I mean, I'm a consumer, so I... Right, you there know. you go. <laughs> yeah. Extensive market Extensive research. research. And uh, so what... What made you say, "Hey, I'm willing to do something in a totally different industry that I've never that I've never tried before?" Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is uh, partially. I think the skills I have are, are relatively, the financial skills are relatively translatable to a number of right. uh, verticals. So I didn't feel as intimidated as I might have felt in a marketing role or a creative role or other roles in the company that are certainly more uh, specific to to what you're doing. Uh, to what the business is. Um, so uh, that was one aspect of it. Is I, I felt like I felt confident that I wouldn't be a, a complete failure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but also I think there was a there was a part of adventure to it, certainly, um, that just starting something entrepreneurial. Uh, most of the companies I'd worked for, all of the companies I'd worked for were mature. And uh, I came in either you know, much later in the game or towards the end of uh, a convincing business. And so getting to start from the ground up and see a lot of different things was, was also a, a motivation. And then just knowing some of the people that I'd be working with was, was a high motivation factor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so for example, like this international oil and gas company that you worked for, like how, what kind of scale would it have been at? What, what was the revenue of this? Uh, it's, uh, in the 150 million to 200 million right. dollar range. So yeah. you were going from very established company yeah. to you would be coming in on the ground floor. A couple of funny stories about when you accepted the role. Uh, this this is good good illustration of just how naive you can be early in a company. Um, I had talked with the co-founders and mentioned you as a candidate. Uh, for CFO. They had both, I think, talked to you and were very impressed. And when I told them that you had accepted, they said, man, that's fantastic, but what's he going to do? And in retrospect, it's just uh, hilarious because uh, we we there was so much we didn't even realize that we weren't even thinking about at that point. But it quickly became apparent that there was a tremendous amount of ground. And really, you were going from being in established companies where you're kind of, there's a lot of structure and, and different people reporting to you to where we had none of that infrastructure in place. So as you transitioned into the role, what were the first things that you tried to do in order to start to build this thing and lay a foundation of having a strong financial structure? Sure. Uh, I think... You know, one, there's just a lot of, from the start, you always need to understand the business. Obviously, how is the cash made? How does the cash come in? Where does the cash go out? And and how does that happen? And so, you know, there's certainly an investment in time and just from the very front end, hey, I want to understand how we make money. And, mm -hmm. um, and um, so, you know, just investing time talking to different team members. And, you know, it was such a small group, it was relatively easy to get caught up on this pretty quick. I mean, it was fairly straightforward how we were making money at that point in the game. <laughs> right. We and had like one person that paid <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. Um, you know, that that was the initial start. And then really trying to think about the different functions that needed to happen in a financial organization from accounting, treasury, financial planning, uh, all, and risk management on and, and to start to think about how I would, you know, build each one of those out or, you know, actually we had, you know, Michael, who was one of the founders had was in the CFO role at the time. So he had already built out some of this. So some of it was just, you know, extension of what he had already started. And, um, you know, so. Another thing that you didn't mention, but I remember you saying was a, a pretty high priority and why the opportunity was compelling is that you really liked 
the idea of being able to heavily form strategy and and you're a great strategic thinker I want to spend some time thinking about that together, like how you've been able to apply your gifts for strategy and how that's mattered uh, along the way with the company. Uh, because uh, as you said, you came in and you helped get, you know, kind of put out the initial fires that were burning. And then we started to have really serious conversations about how are we going to grow this company? As you think back about making decisions, what do you think were a couple of the key decisions we made early on about the strategy and the vision for where we were trying to go? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's several that stand out that really, um, affected the trajectory as for a long, a long time. I think one was a desire uh, to not take outside money. Yeah. So we've had a, you know, a, one of the big things uh, as a CFO that affects your life is your cap structure. We were willing to, to borrow money, but we did not want to take, you know, outside investment money um, and to really be accountable to ourselves uh, and to run the business how we wanted to run it. So, you know, at the highest level from a financial standpoint, uh, who owns the company, you know, matters a great deal. And right. so I think it was, you know, there were some different forks in the road there and we, we always circled back to, uh, we want to control the business. Uh, we want to run it the way we want to run it, uh, and to prioritize the goals of the business. So to pause there, manner. yeah. when we made the decision to be a bootstrapped company yeah. and you know, it, it sounds like that's kind of, you know, trendy and sexy to say, you know, our business was bootstrapped, but what doesn't get talked about very much is all of the trade-offs and sure. sacrifices that come with that. Uh, what are some of the, what are some of the hard things that come with deciding not to take outside capital? Sure. Well, as a CFO, the, the most basic one is there's never any cash. Yeah. We don't so, have any money, right? No money. Uh, and so you're, you know, you're watching cash very tightly. You're, you're, you know, uh, managing GNA budgets, so which had implications on people's pay and medical benefits or lack thereof. And um, so, you know, I mean, there's, there's just the, the mere uh, fact without the cash that you're having to make personal sacrifices to be, yeah. uh, to be running and to, I mean, the, the biggest risk you're managing on the front end is whether or not this business has any legs, whether we can get it off the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was one of the big pivots for me when I kind of come from a risk management background to say, okay, well, actually the big risk right now is we never get this thing to any scale or we never get it off the ground. Which is funny because we were at, you know, we were probably at $10 million in revenue. And for me, I'm thinking $10 million in revenue, $10 million is a lot. This is great. But you were really the voice that was like, I know that seems like a big number, but that's actually not enough scale to really do any, you know, to really have stability and uh, to, to pay people the kind of salaries that they're going to need to make to do the things that we want to do, we're going to have to get to higher scale than that. For sure. And I think that um, also a function, it, it was, uh, we had a lot of concentration risk with one, yeah. one customer. Uh, which was so, Amazon at that yeah, point. Yeah, which was Amazon at that point. And so I, th I think that was another big priority was to try to, uh, one, we had aspirations to have, you know, to build out our own distribution, which is, which is really started to flourish. Uh, but this also to diversify the customer base. So, uh, I think that was, uh, something we began, began to pursue shortly after me had already pursued with Sam's club prior to my arrival, but, uh, really with Chris Hoyle leading the sales group, tried to certainly expand our distribution footprint, yeah. uh, which turned out to be a really healthy thing for us. Yeah, I, I think you alluded to this, but it's worth underlining. Our initial team, the way that we built out our initial team was probably a typical, a lot of startups, it's you get initial product market fit and as it grows, you just kind of are grabbing people, usually whoever's closest or, you know, um, people that are just out of college or, or inexpensive and uh, as you grow. And then there's a little bit of a crisis where you don't necessarily have the leaders in place for the company as it grows. We had a little bit of the opposite problem, uh, if you will, which was 
I, I really went out and tried to hire the executive team as the first employees and really start with executive level thinkers. And so there were a lot of benefits of that. Like you've mentioned, we, we were taking on these problems with very capable people, but also we couldn't pay anybody more market value. Everybody was taking a step down in compensation to do this. They were taking a step up in risk and a step down in compensation. And so there was some risk inherent in that and building around that, that we needed to be able to grow this thing for the team that we had built to make any sense at all. You know, if it was a lifestyle business that one person was running, you know, that's one thing. But with the type of team we built, we really built a team to try and build a brand. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about. I don't know what, you know, exactly was going through uh, your mind strategically when you when you compiled who you'd like to work on the team. But if you think, you know, part of the risk reduction was hiring the team we had because everyone had a lot to lose if it failed, Yeah, you know? That's right. <laughs> so, so there was a little bit of, uh, you know, there's a greater chance of success because everyone is, is, uh, acutely impacted. The ships were if, burned. Yes. Well, yeah. and I've told people this before that, um, you know, for me, my wife and I had really kind of said, who are the very best people? And I had gone and recruited down that list. And so I always knew this was the shot. You know, like uh, when I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, often I'll tell them, listen, it's about building your intellectual and financial and relational capital and waiting for just the right pitch to swing it because uh, you want to swing really hard. And that's pretty much what I did. I waited until I felt like I had a really great opportunity and then I sold out on the swing. So it was like, if this didn't work out, you know, there was not a, there was not a round two because not only would I be unemployed and not have any money, but Oh, also many of my close yeah, friends, all my, be, you know, all the people, a bunch of relationships. That's, yeah, exactly. No one, no one would feel so, that way, you know, we, it's easy to not talk about those risks yeah. now that everything's gone well, but sure. you know, on some of the harder days, it was like, have I made a huge mistake here? Like I didn't just risk all my like financial capital, but I'm risking like a ton of relational capital. But at the same time, it was also part of why it worked is because yeah, I threw sure. everything I had at it. And um, like you said, not only did I, but, but a bunch of people did. They left good careers and they, they kind of pushed all their chips in. And so we were committed, you know? Yeah. yeah. So one of the ways that we de-risked the business was we made the business bankable. If you're not going to go out and raise funding by selling equity yeah. and you're, you know, you're capital constrained, then you've got to find some way to bridge that. You know, we, especially once we started selling in places like Target, where you don't get paid immediately, we needed to make the business bankable. How did you go about doing that? Making uh, Simple Modern a company that could gradually grow a significant banking relationship? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, we were, we were comfortable with debt and actually it was a great time in the markets. I mean, rates throughout the entire uh, history of the company up until present day have been really attractive. Uh, so it was a, a smart way uh, to uh, improve returns. Um, but in terms of actually making it bankable, uh, and, and really this, this goes back to some things that were done before me, but we had started with uh, purchase order financing and, and financing our receivables. So basically any any collateral we had. Right. Uh, we, and purchase uh, order financing isn't inexpensive. No, it is not. You know, it's, it's not quite a loan shark, it's a little but bit better than like an IOU <laughs> yeah. on a right. napkin. I don't know that my legs would have been broken yeah. if we hadn't right. paid it, but yeah. like, I don't want to find out, yeah. you know, like it, exactly. it's, it's very expensive. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think essentially the way we, we thought about it was really, it, it's, it, it has to do with your collateral base and having yeah. a really, uh, a collateral base with integrity and value um, and so it really turns out to be, okay, it's a function of how do we manage inventory? Um, and, uh, so we had, we, we knew that this is the largest asset on our balance sheet. It's, it is the business, what you do with inventory. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, it, it was one of the big adjustments was to get used to the fact that inventory was such a, it makes total sense, but, uh, it, it wasn't something I'd come in with the, the, uh, conceived thought of that inventory was such an important thing. Uh, and so, you know, we really started to watch uh, inventory turnover. We really started to think about the business in terms of return on invested capital. So a function of how quickly do we turn this inventory and what margin do we do we receive 
for that inventory. And, and, and that was kind of an early, early conceptual framework uh, for how we thought about the business. It also helps you achieve high levels of growth, um, yeah. which drives also drives uh, your ability to bank the business uh, because they want to see stability. They want to see growth, but they also want to see that your margins are intact. If you're growing, but it's at the cost of lots of you know, sponsored advertising uh, and you're driving those margins down, that's not sustainable. Uh, and then also if you're sitting on really long inventory positions in certain areas, those aren't bankable. So, uh, you know, really we had a, we had a great brand that we were building. We were in a good channel in Amazon, uh, and a, and a pretty good channel also in target, uh, that really allowed us to maintain, um, integrity in our margins. And, and then, uh, we started to build the team out that I think we focused on the planning really the forecasting and planning uh, function in the finance department before any of the other functions, because we knew it was so integral to maintaining uh, healthy inventory levels. There's so many great points to be made here, but I mean, you mentioned it, you'd come from oil and gas and you're not thinking about inventory in oil and gas. You know, oil and gas companies don't go bankrupt because of inventory. And from the outside, it, when you look at a consumer product business, it's, it seems simple. You make something for $5 and then you sell it for $20 and you, you make some of that profit. Seems like a great business model. And as long as you can sell things for $20 that you made for $5, you have a profitable business and you're going to be fine. And it's shocking when you realize like, nope, actually not true at all. You can go bankrupt very easily, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, selling things for $20 that cost you $5 to make because inventory eats up so much money. Um, there was an example just this year of uh, Instapot and Pyrex and a bunch of other brands are owned by a company that went bankrupt because of inventory and because they, they got stuck with too much inventory, even though people were still buying a lot of their products. So I was the same as you. I had not really been involved in growing a consumer brand, and I didn't understand just how dangerous inventory was and how vital it was. You can't grow. You can't sell something you don't have. So the other thing that I didn't anticipate is you can never grow faster than you plan to grow. Like you have to buy the the tools yeah. to you grow. You can't sell what you don't have. That's right. And so it, you have to make guesses about how fast you can grow. And your guess is, oh, by the way, will always be wrong 100% of the time. You just don't know how they're going to be wrong. Right. And then you have to put enormous amounts of money behind your projections. Um, and the, the business is basically dealing with it, dealing with being wrong on both sides. When you're growing faster than you thought and so you don't have enough stuff, and how do you deal with that? And when you're growing slower than you thought and oh my gosh we've got way too much stuff and we're out of money and it's all sitting in inventory what do we do this was a pretty huge shock to me and i i think it is to most entrepreneurs that, that first get in this situation but to your point we had to build out a pretty robust planning team to make the best inventory decisions we possibly could yeah and strategically i mean i, I think we began to realize and now almost fully realize it how fashion oriented this business was. So it's not right. just a matter of the inventory, it's the inventory is very nuanced. We have this color and this shape and this size. And, this size, yeah. and with this lid. Right, with this lid and people's taste. For this are, channel, people's right? People's tastes are changing. So yes, yeah. it it, you know, there was a lot of different uh variables to the inventory and changing taste. And so uh, you know, we invested a lot of time uh looking at that, trying to understand uh you know, what do, what do different, how do different variables impact uh, our planning, building scenarios, uh, testing those scenarios against different upside, downside cases. Um, and it's still, yeah, obviously we're still wrong at different times, but, yeah. um, you know, I think we overall built out something that was, was helpful in the end. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of it's attributable to just having strong people in on the the financial forecasting and planning team um, that they do a great job, long, do a great job. Yeah. Well, to go back to the idea of risk, one of the ways that we found that you can gradually reduce that risk is the bigger your portfolio gets, it balances out. You have places where, you know, you undershoot demand places where you overshoot demand 
and a customer comes and says, oh, you don't have the color of blue that I wanted, but oh, you have this different color of blue in that same bottle, or you have red, I'll buy that instead, I'll substitute. And so you don't just lose that sale and that your, your misses on, on, where you have too much inventory and your misses where you don't have enough can kind of balance each other out across a portfolio. The more places you sell, the more things you sell, the less you're subject to being really wrong in one place and that just submarining you. So during this period, we are working with a local bank and you know we're talking about risk. I think both you and I had conversations at this point where we realized there's some risk as we were getting bigger and bigger in being with a local bank, but we really wanted to have a partnership mentality. And this bank had really helped us from the very beginning. Um, and we were getting bigger and bigger. It had started at like a $50,000 line of credit. And we had gotten to the point where it was a $5 million or $6 million line of credit. And we kind of took the approach that we're going to let them kind of tap out. We're not going to just leave them because they've grown with us. COVID hits. And sure enough, they come to us and they do tap out. Uh, they, they wanted to change their portfolio structure. It wasn't that we couldn't pay for our line of credit. They just felt uncomfortable with the amount of risk. That was a pretty harrowing time to be trying to go through a transition in banks. Tell me about that process. Yeah. Well, COVID was a a harrowing time in general. Yeah. Obviously there were major, uh, financial, uh, dynamics at play, uh, that, you know, uh, work themselves out probably for the, for our good, uh, since we were, you know, uh, predominantly e-commerce business and we're in, we're in target, which, you know, did well, uh, during COVID also. Uh, but yes, so we were in a situation where, uh, our, our lead, our only bank, our lead bank, uh, which was a local bank was ready to, uh, de-risk, you know, their portfolio. And specifically they didn't have a lot of consumer, there are not a lot of consumer product companies in Oklahoma. And no. so Oklahoma banks don't tend to have a lot of consumer names. Uh, and so this, they weren't real comfortable uh, with the position. Uh, and so that they, they communicated in a healthy way and with, with plenty yeah, of, they were, they were great. They, they were great. The they timing us, might not have they been They gave ideal. us good notice. It was maybe a little bit sooner than we were ready to, uh, to move the account. But, you know, we did, we did start a, you know, a national search uh, for uh, a partner uh, on the, um, ABL. So the asset backed financing, uh, space and, and ended up with, uh, JP Morgan chase eventually. Uh, but after, you know, talking to a number of banks and, and going through a process with a number of banks. So I think in the end it was, it was scary. Uh, it was, you know, we had, we, we did not know what it would be work, what it would be like to work with some of the the national level accounts, whether we'd get the customer service we wanted, whether they'd have attention to the local market and the business we wanted. But we've been very, very happy uh, with it. And they've re- they have, you know, we've increased the the size of that credit uh, several times over at this point, and they've grown with us. So it's yeah. been a, it's been a fantastic relationship. Yeah. At this point, it's a, it's a fantastic relationship. Yeah. It's a huge facility. I mean, that's a stressful moment you're describing. And I want to spend some time talking about the emotions of this. Yeah. Uh, we will talk more about the strategy, but when you're a CFO of a startup and especially one that's bootstrapped and probably with our growth rate, we felt perpetually undercapitalized, I think. I mean, I, I don't know if it was year seven uh, or year eight. We're in year eight now. I, somewhere in the last probably 12 to 18 months is the first time that you and I have looked at each other and said, okay, I don't feel undercapitalized anymore. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of emotional strain that comes from that. I mean, you're an achiever by nature, as am I. We can already put a lot on our shoulders, but Also, you know, we're running a company where everybody's job depends on us making sure there's money. And there's a lot of stress that comes from that. What have been some of the stressful situations that that stand out to you? Times where you really felt the weight of trying to provide financial security for the company and trying to make sure that there was enough money to pay everybody. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there was a a time... uh probably in 2018, uh, where, you know, we had, uh, had had some good success in 2017 on Amazon. And so we went pretty heavy with some purchasing, uh, 
and and got a little bit over our skis. I think this was probably the most uh, stressful time uh, just from a, a financing position that the company ever had. I don't know that I ever felt there was a, uh, a situation where we were uh, in any risk of insolvency uh, per se, but it, it was still stressful. It was still too close for comfort. It was too close for comfor- comfort. Um, and, you know, we, we had the levers, uh, we had the levers at our disposal to get through it for sure. And actually the, the boat, uh, you know, the, the ship was turned pretty quickly and, um, fortunately we were able to get out of that inventory position and, and, uh, and actually had a great growth year, uh, in 2018. And, and it, it really looked like a pretty good year by the end of the year. But, um, you know, I think for me, uh, just, uh, there's, there's a couple things, one about our team, which is there's a, there's a high degree uh, of trust in the team mm-hmm. and a high degree that we're all uh, in this for the same reasons. And I think that de-risks some of the pressure uh, of, of, of feeling like uh, the weight of everyone's uh, future is in my hands or in your hands, uh, knowing that everyone was aware of the risks coming in and that uh, – everyone is, was really capable. And so I think there was always a confidence that we can get through this. Uh, we can make this work. And, uh, I think there was, a uh, also an ability for the organization to respond when we knew we needed to respond. Today's episode is brought to you by the van group. About a year ago, we decided it was time to update the simple modern website. We desired to create a look that elevated our brand while keeping a focus on performance and speed. We talked to many other business owners for a list of recommendations, and after talking to several potential partners, we chose to work with the Van Group. Over the past several months, we have been working closely with the Van team on building and launching our new website. To kick things off, the team at Van did a fantastic job of gathering our input and walking us through a proven process to create a winning product. Van Group has developed a proprietary brand conversion design framework. Using this strategy, Van is able to deliver highly creative and performant websites that don't compromise on brand and improve the bottom line. In our experience, we've been impressed by their deep knowledge, creativity, and collaboration. Once our new website launched, the team at Van worked tirelessly to address issues and to make data-driven improvements. For all these reasons, I'm very happy to advocate for the Van Group and their outstanding team. You can learn more by visiting their website, thevangroup.com. I think one of the things that we did during that period, which made sense because there was so much risk, is we made the decision to uh, allow uh, a lot of early employees to have the opportunity to buy into the company on the equity side. And and it really makes sense with the amount of risk that existed um, and people leaving really good jobs to come work at the company for us to provide some kind of a way where if you're going to take on this risk, then we feel strongly that you should be able uh, to, to be rewarded if this thing really does work. And fortunately that's, that's part of the story now, although it it wasn't, it's funny, you know, I, am I'm the kind of eternal optimist uh, of the group, which, um, I've said it before that to some extent you have to be naive to be an entrepreneur. If you, if you sat down and you really diagrammed out all the risks, you could talk yourself out of any business venture, Um, but I, have been optimistic really all the way through. And now I look back on myself during 2016, 2017 and realize that there was really some naivete in my optimism, even though it worked out and I'm, I'm thankful that it worked out, but it's, it's a little bit like, man, if I, if I'd only known, you know, what I know now, then I I would have been a lot, I would have been a lot more concerned, but, uh, I have been encouraged how, one of the ways we've tried to apply generosity is by saying, hey, we're going to try and involve a lot of people in the ownership of the company. I think, I don't know if we have 15 or 16 people mm-hmm. on the cap table. So in one way, we we didn't want to dilute ownership by going and getting outside capital, but instead we really tried to spread ownership around inside of the company, which like you said, that was another part of the kind of aligning everybody's interests where it's like, hey, we're, you know, we're all in. All of us are all in, and even even during the most difficult stretches, I don't think there was ever really uh, worry that you know people were going to bail or that people were afraid of yeah. it getting hard. Yeah, you know, I think part of it's that we've always had a good story to tell. Yeah, 
and you feel like when you have a good story, we, we've, we've, we've always had the growth there. And so if you feel like you have a good story, you know, ultimately you can probably find the capital if you need it. And I think that was always in the back of the mind. Maybe we've tapped out on the, on the debt markets for now. Uh, and maybe we'll raise a little bit of money, um, internally, Yeah, but that, uh, I think there was more of a mentality of, Hey, let's try to, let's try to keep this ownership group tight. And if, if it comes to have to, having to tap outside, outside money that we've got the story to tell. And so I think that was, there was always confidence in that. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a point in the company where there wasn't confidence that we don't have a good t- story to tell. So we have this ownership structure where we're completely owned basically by operators. There's a couple of people now that have transitioned out of operating roles, but generally that's that's the heritage is the company being owned by people who have operated the company and the people who built the company. How do you think that's made us stronger as a, as a company that the, the ownership has been held internally? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, there's there's just a high level of, of buy-in and interest in what happens with the company when when your financial future is, is tied to it. Um, but, you know, I think also I, I believe that uh, it, it gives you a freedom to make long, you know, to make decisions with a long-term focus and not, you know, you don't have investors that mm-hmm. want results on a certain timeline. Uh, I think we all had a pretty, uh, we had a pretty long view in mind. And also we just had different, I think there's a different set of, of goals in mind altogether that aren't only financial uh, for that ownership, for our ownership team. Let's stop there. How would you do? How would you explain that if somebody said, "Okay, so you've got goals"? I mean, it's a for-profit business. You've got goals beyond just profit, and we're really clear. Like, we're capitalists. We're all about growing a profitable business. But what are some of the other goals outside of profit that you see the company having? You know, when I when I think about the company and the goals, I think one of the the bigger takeaways. I think I think there's there's a high level desire to to give and, and specifically t- that to benefit largely our community, the Oklahoma City mm-hmm. and, and the state of Oklahoma. And that's important to us. Uh, and we have yeah, different giving priorities there. I also think there's another uh, set of goals that's more internal towards people, which is that um, they feel that the gifts that they were given uh, they get exercise for the greater good. And sometimes that's a bit esoteric in terms of what exactly that looks like. But I think mm-hmm. that internally uh, people have a sense of, of what that means for them and that we can kind of uh, fit that under, uh, you know, I, I was reading, I'm uh, probably only read three genres of, you know, spy novels, Cold War fiction, nonfiction, and and classics, and I've been reading the. It's quite a triad. Yes, the Confessions by uh, Augustine, and and there's there's kind of an interesting part where he's talking about, hey, I just I realized, you know, he was reading Aristotle and and talking about his uh, ability to learn mathematics and logic and rhetoric, uh, and all kind of fields of knowledge, and and he started teaching, and he realized, oh, I just have an ability that is unusual. It is far beyond Mm -hmm. anybody else's ability to uh, kind of understand and obtain knowledge and use knowledge. And, you know, a a couple of things about that, you know, uh, one, it was like, he realized it was a a gift from above, you know, uh, Augustine was a a later convert to to Christianity, but um, he also just realized that what, you know, kind of he, he, he stated, you know, what, what kind of purpose are these gifts if I can't use them for good? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think there's, uh, that's, that's something I think is shared by this management team is that, hey, I've received these gifts. I didn't, I didn't do anything uh, to merit them or, uh, make, you know, uh, give them to myself, but that. Yeah, you were uh, born with them. You're born with them part, or, yeah. you know. Uh, different ways you obtain them, but, uh, that, that being able to, to exercise those gifts for what you think is, uh, good and right and just is, uh, a really important, uh, facet of the reward system. Yeah. I've become convinced that the internal ownership structure of a company 
has a much better, bigger impact on that company's success in the marketplace than I ever anticipated before. Yeah. Uh, I know there, there's some evidence of this, but I'm, I'm starting to think that it matters quite a lot that uh, the more that a company has the ability to take a long view and to consider things other than just how do I make the most money right now, the better that company becomes, not just uh, across the financial dimensions, but especially when we start to talk about the impact that that company's making, you know, in the lives of the employees or the, the customers or their community, that it creates the freedom to think multidimensionally. Yeah. Right. When you just say, hey, we've got to maximize profit, we got to maximize profit right now. And we got to do it because if we don't, the share price is going to go down and I'm going to get fired as CEO or whatever. Then you can maximize for that one thing. Sometimes you can maximize for that one thing, but you totally neglect these other areas. But what I'm learning is even the ability in consumer brands having a, a brand that people believe in matters a ton. I mean, this is, uh, I can tell you all of the research and just kind of anecdotally, all of the experience I have talking to college students, this is what they care about. They want to vote with their wallets. They want to buy from brands that are doing what you're talking about. And more than that, they want to work for brands and work for companies that do that. There's some, some recent research that says, you know, people are like, I'd be happy to take a 20 or 30% pay cut to work for a company where I feel like my gifts and abilities tie directly to making a tangible positive impact in the world. And we're at an, an interesting kind of inflection point culturally where that thought process is more prevalent probably than it's ever been. You know, that, that my job is not just a means to make money, but it's also a huge part of my life mission and my self-expression. So I, I think I naturally think that way, but as I kind of pop my head up and look around, um, I think we're really just on the front end of what's becoming a very popular point of view uh, across everybody entering the workforce. And, and my challenge and probably question to other employers is that if you can't tell that story, to a potential applicant. If you can't help them understand how their gifts and talents and abilities are going to somehow tie to the world being impacted in a positive way that matters to them, you're going to have a really hard time holding on to that, that employee and building a team. Yeah. You have fewer incentives at your disposal. That's absolutely right. right. Um, yeah, it's just money. Right. At that point, it's just like all you can do is hit the the kind of compensation lever as hard as you can and hope that nobody else is going to throw out a bigger number. Um, but but that's when the, the other problem is when the only lever you're using is compensation to attract talent, then you also can get mercenaries, you know, and sure. like, listen, and that's that's fine. Some people are like, the only reason I work is because I need money and I don't care. I don't care about the people I work with. I don't care about anything else. I just want to maximize my earning. And that's fine for some people to take that perspective. But as you try to, if, if your lever is compensation, you're going to appeal more and more to that crowd. Whereas, like, like you're saying, when the compensation package that you're offering is more holistic, you've got a lot of opportunity to compete for top talent uh, with, without just trying to, to pay outrageous salaries or um, you know, attracting the wrong type of person. Yep. And in a lot of ways, it's, there, there are different challenges uh, to... Uh, what you're talking about. One is, is you know, uh, to the degree it can be internally driven, it, it, it makes sense. It's harder to say, well, this is the, the thing we're all uh, trying to achieve. This is the good that we're all trying to achieve. The more specific you get on that front, you know, the, yeah. more, the more views there are on what exactly... When you uh, narrow it down. The more you try and narrow it down, the more difficult it, it is to get, um, you know, unanimity on... Uh, on that, but I think that uh, the company's done a great job of uh, trying to express that in a broader sense and, and letting it be uh, giving enough room for that to be defined by, you know, what motivates uh, individual employees. Uh, and uh, and so I think, yeah, when it's when it's uh, motivated, you know, by a desire to achieve uh, goals that are important to you, and, and then then it's uh, it's extremely motivating. Well, and on that, on that note, I mean, one of my strongest opinions is that high-performing teams um, 
one of the most interesting things for all of the talk about diversity, one of the most interesting thing about high performing teams is they're very non-diverse in one particular way, and that is their value structure. That teams that have really diverse value structures are a mess, and there's yep. lots of factions, and there's lots of competing because... Uh, your values really matter to you and you really believe in them and you're really going to advocate for them. And if you have coworkers that are advocating for the opposite of the things you value, like that is going to create, you know, we saw a lot of this in 2020 and 2021 culture was basically like diversity in everything always is best. And it's like, well, no, no, not, not necessarily high functioning teams are usually built around ideas and values that everybody is really bought into. And we live in a very free society where there's a lot of different ideas. There's a lot of ideas out there that I don't agree with um, and I wouldn't advocate for, but it's great that people can hold those. And we live in a society where we can all think independently, but we're trying to build a team of a hundred people here. Like if I'm going to build a great team, I'm going to build it around core ideas and core values that everybody can rally around and say, we're going to plant our flag in the ground here. And we all get excited about these things. And we're all uh, about these things. Shoot, diversity and all the other things, but around core values and core ideas, you've got to have alignment. And that's where us coming up with clear values and a clear vision statement, using that in recruitment, I think it's been really meaningful Uh, And it's helped. One of the things that I think you do a good job of doing, Jeff, is also tying that to the money. You know, it's not like, oh, over here, here's all the ideas we're about. And then over here is the making the money. And there's kind of a firewall between them. And we don't, you know, these two things don't really touch either each other. But you do a really good job of helping to explain, hey, when we are more efficient here, which leads to more profit than that trickles out in terms of this is the way we're more generous with customers and with employees and how our giving goes up. And you're able to draw that line. You know, we talk about connecting things. We don't just, I think, connect people's gifts to making an impact. We're also able to help people see the string of when my gifts lead to a more profitable business, that leads to all of these kind of, you know, uh, this, this kind of flywheel of, of things that, that I like happening and the, that that's really powerful when, when you're able to, you know, numbers can be for many people, it's like, man, the numbers, my eyes glaze over. You've done a really good job of making that practical for people. How have you approached doing that? Helping people understand how our financial performance ties to kind of some of these more qualitative ideas. Yeah, that's, it's a great point that, that we are, that we are tying it. It, it does affect us financially. Also, I think there's a high degree of of a concept of stewardship, but, uh, there's also a sense where we, we also want to be able to financially give and that the financial, financial giving comes from the company being profitable. Um, and so we, we talk about that, you know, uh, predominantly in, in company meetings. Uh, we, we talk about the concept of contribution margin, which is what do you take away after you, you know, throw in all the costs, so to speak. Yeah, it's and not just how much is your revenue yeah, growing. We it's, it's we had periods the, where yeah. we were like that. We we joked. We had a top liners club and yeah. a bottom liners club. And, you know, I was kind of president of the top liners club where it's like just growth, growth, growth. And you were kind of like, okay, yeah, but if we're not producing any contribution margin, what's the point? Which was really helpful for me because <laughs> growth for growth's sake does nothing growth that actually ties to contribution margin can then tie to these things that we want to be about and that we want to accomplish. And so trying to give really tangible expressions of how particular people's efforts contribute to that margin was helpful and to, and to talk about the different trade-offs they have in their day uh, and what kinds of things contribute to this and to really draw that out to, you know, uh, driving more contribution margin helps us provide more financial support to partners, which everybody in the company loves, um, you know, allocating money to our giving partners. Um, it also lets us, you know, be generous with employees in, in, in ways too. So, you know, I think uh, we've tried to have a focus on that. And, and uh, in a lot of ways, you know, our team is probably more the the bottom liner team. So we tend to be the ones in the organizations who are, who are uh, talking about that and pointing out you know, inefficiencies and, and ways we think that can get, um, stronger. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, I, I think that it's important that, you know, sometimes we can talk because we talk so much about culture and, and mission and we can sound kind of like a nonprofit. You and I have both worked for a nonprofit, but we're not a nonprofit. And the engine of all of this is producing profit, which isn't a four letter word. It's a really positive word. And it makes it possible for us to make the kind of imprint and impact that we want to make on the world. And, and even to some extent, it's been about really educating our entire team on that, that when we are healthy, we produce profit because when we produce profit, we can produce impact. And one other thing that's worth saying here, you mentioned the giving that we do. It's 10% of profit annually, which is a considerable number this year that is going to be millions of dollars. And one of the reasons why value alignment matters so much, as, as a side note, generosity is a core value here. We are giving millions of dollars away Obviously, if you have employees or team members that are not on board with generosity, it's it's not going to take very long before it's like, hey, how about we don't give those millions of dollars away and we just put it in salaries? That'd be awesome. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if I want to give money away, I'll give money away. But we've really recruited around that being a core value, which is absolutely necessary because the whole thing doesn't work if you don't have a team that's aligned with that trade-off that hey, I'm willing to earn a little bit less money than I would, maybe a lot less money than I would so that we can give as an organization and and that trade-off is real that you know there's a fixed amount of money but values help you to make trade-off decisions i feel like we've had a ton of trade-off decisions over the course of the kind i mean in fact gosh 90 percent of the conversations you and i have it's not really like this is the good idea and this is the bad idea which one are we going to do it's more like well here are our options and we see the pros and cons with each how do you think through trade-off decisions I think you're really good at it. And and some of it is you're able to see all of the trade-offs, which that's one of the things that I feel like you, one of the ways that you enrich my, my life and my decision-making process is that sometimes I'll look at something and see two or three of the trade-offs or, or, or different kind of dimensions. And you'll show me a couple that I haven't even seen. So how do you think about trade-off decisions? It, it comes maybe fairly, I don't say naturally to me to, to, to think, to probably think opposite of you. So, <laughs> right. uh, I think, uh, I just see the world ultimately through, uh, oftentimes through a different lens. So I tend to see other, other things. I think it's one Pause of the, there for a second. Yeah. I just want to make the observation that I think that's why our partnership works. Like my wife is an opposite on me and Myers-Briggs. I've mentioned this through several different episodes. You in many ways, approach things from a different perspective than I do. And I think it's a great example of how, you know, in a great partnership, those, um, kind of opposite strengths can challenge and complement each other. Because like you said, you and I can come at something from very different angles. And instead of that leading to negative conflict, like I wouldn't say it never leads to conflict or difficult decisions, but in, in a really positive partnership, the conflict of those different perspectives leads to really good discussion and decisions where you really see the issue fully and you know what you're signing up for with whatever you do. Right. Right. And I, and I think that's, that's a great point. I think one of the other strengths of the culture that I, I think's help, I think helps, uh, highlight trade-off decisions is we, we have a value in humility, mm. uh, as a core value. And I think what that does is, uh, it allows, uh, for healthy discussion of different viewpoints. Um, and so I think one of the things, one of the reason different trade-offs get brought up is because people feel comfortable to share their views, mm. uh, that they're, they're not going to get um, hammered if they share a, a view that's, you know, uh, unique or, or off the wall. So, um, you know, I think a lot of the, the trade-offs percolate uh, up through the organization uh, because of the way we encourage uh, discussion. And so I, I think it's a function of just uh, hearing those and, and expressing it. I'm not sure I have a, a magic formula for thinking through uh, or for coming up with different trade-offs. Uh, I think usually we think you know, through a financial lens on what the cost of those trade-offs are and try to uh, think about the, the longer-term impact of them. But uh, I don't know that there's any magic in that other than um, having a it's helpful to have discussion for me. I'm a verbal, yeah, verbal processor. Well, and where it gets tough it, from my point of view is where the trade-offs are financial versus um, non-financial. Sure. You know, it's like, 
uh, okay, how much uh, this decision probably increases how much our, our team feels empowered and how much decision-making ability they have and how much they are going to grow year over year, but it probably costs a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. How do you value that? You know, and these are the, this is probably where, uh, like, I think real leadership is being able to think across those dimensions of how do I compare disparate things and say, you know, what is the most important to us as an organization? And, uh, over the years, like you said, we've had a lot of discussion, often robust discussion and, I, I'm reminded of this analogy that I heard once about marriage that you, you know, when you're young, you think, oh, a great relationship wouldn't have conflict. And then as you get older, you realize a relationship that didn't have conflict is actually a really bad relationship because it shows exactly what you're saying, which is that some things just aren't getting talked about because there's just no way that two people don't have conflict that, you know, have a a very close relationship. It's naturally, it's a part of any close relationship. And that one of the signs of health is a little bit counterintuitive. It's actually people being willing to raise their hand and say, I disagree, you know, let's talk about it. And that, that has probably caught me off guard that one of the ways we've cultivated a healthy environment is a way where people are able to respectfully disagree, you know, kind of the disagree without being disagreeable and that there, you know, there should be a decent amount of conflict when you're talking about some of these trade-off decisions, because there isn't a right answer, right? And there's going to be different perspectives. So we've, we've been together for, for several years doing this and, a ton of great memories along the way. What are one or two memories that stand out to you? Yeah, I, I think that uh, we do, we've done it in different cadences, but now we do once, roughly once a month, a time of, of encouraging uh, employees. And, and I think for me, a couple of the most memorable are being able to give encouragement to uh, the the people that work for me in those mm-hmm. meetings and really being able to express um, the things that I appreciate about them and why why they're cared for and, uh, you know, to experience their reaction and, and just know that they're in a place where they're accepted and, and loved. Um, and to me, those have been uh, some of the more enjoyable moments. Um, I think that uh, kind of through the years, there's been probably three different uh, kind of cycles. I think there was the the early cycle where there was you know, 12 or 14 of us. And there were a lot of fun times. Just uh, I think one of the more enjoyable times was that uh, just sitting around a circle and it was just go around the circle. Tell me what you're doing. What's the most important thing mm-hmm. you're doing this week? Because you had such a comprehensive view of the company and mm-hmm. what was going on and learn so much uh, about so many different things uh, because it was such a uh, intimate setting. Uh, and then we moved to kind of everybody starting to have their own direct reports. And I think that was just a rich time uh, of building their first couple relationships with, you know, the first two folks in the planning department and the first couple folks in the accounting department where you're, you're really in their life. And so, you know, just experiencing life changes uh, with those people and going through hard times with those people um, just created a bond that, uh, you know, is different than other relationships. And then I think the great uh, thing about the current situation is just that uh, we've been, you know, uh, we've been able to continue to hire well. And now just, it's great to have a team that's uh, so fantastic at what mm-hmm. they do and um, and to just have been doing it together for several years. We've had a lot of continuity on the team. So uh, just, to ha- just to have the comfort and continuity on that team uh, and to perform at such a high level is yeah. a lot of fun. It's, it's funny because the, the best and the worst part of this stage are two sides of the same coin. The worst part for me is there's so many great people within the organization, so many great projects that we're doing that I get to have very little involvement with. And I feel that sense of loss. Like you said, that there was a point where I was able to be involved in everything and able to be really involved in everyone's life. 
And there was so much richness that came from that. Like I just cherish those memories. The flip side of that same coin is I look up every day and I see things that I had no involvement in. I can take no credit for that are amazing. I see people within our company doing things that I am so proud to be associated with. And I had no idea that they were working on it. I don't know where the idea came from. I wasn't involved in the planning or execution. You know, I've, I've said before that, I don't even have to see, I don't have to see the pregnancy or the childbirth. I just get to see the baby a lot of times. And I'm like, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm so proud of it. And I'm so proud that I get to be associated with it uh, while still mourning the fact that I would love, I would love to be a part of all those different things. And so I, I feel, I feel the, you know, the foot in both worlds. And it's one of those things that I've learned about every stage, every stage of building a company has its parts that you just you'll miss when they're gone those early days man i miss what you're talking about but um then i also have days where i remember the stress and i don't yeah, miss that very like, much ah, you know fun. fine fine without that and so uh, i've i think what i've learned this is really my second um time to build a company the first was in a supporting role with my brother but i've learned to do my best to cherish whatever stage i'm at and to really enjoy it for what it is. It won't be everything, but to enjoy the parts of it that are unique and special. And, and I feel the same as you, that each of our stages has had some very special moments. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and thanks for the, the job you've done with the company. Uh, I think our success is in large part to your quality of thought and to your character as a person. And I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Scaling for Good. Yeah.